Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. First Kings chapter 16, we're in a series called Kings. We're studying various Old Testament kings of Israel and then Israel and Judah as a divided kingdom. You remember that sometime about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, the first king of Israel was anointed by Samuel. That king was Saul. He reigned for approximately 40 years. God rejected him then and selected David to be the second king of Israel. He reigned for about 40 years. And following David, David's son Solomon reigned for about 40 years. All of that in the United Kingdom, one kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And Rehoboam took some bad advice. The advice that was bad that he received was that you ought to tax people more. You ought to work them harder in order to uh, let them know that you are boss. And so he enacted tougher labor laws and tougher tax policies. And as a result, 10 of the 12 tribes left Rehoboam and started their own nation. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel made up of the 10 northern tribes and the, the southern kingdom of Judah made up of the two remaining tribes, and that's all Rehoboam had left. The northern kingdom chose a fellow by the name of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, to be uh, their new king. All in all, the northern kingdom of Israel would have 19 different kings. The southern kingdom of Judah would have 20 different kings. Of all the 20 kings of Judah... There would be eight of them that would be godly kings, eight out of 20. But of the 19 kings from the northern kingdom of Israel, there was not a single king that the Bible says was godly. And one of those kings, the sixth king of the divided kingdom of Israel, was a fellow by the name of Omri, King Omri. We read about him in 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning with verse 21. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. This is the northern kingdom of Israel. Half supported Timnai, son of Genath, for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Timnai, son of Genath. So Timnai died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Terzah. He, built, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built a city on the hill, and he called it Samaria after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. 
As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, recognizing the importance of putting you first in our lives. And Lord, there there are so many recorded instances where people chose to fill their lives with something else besides you, and the end result was disaster. Father, help us to trust you and help us to love you so much that you are first and foremost in our lives. We put you first before we put anything else in place. Lord, help us to put you first in our words, in our actions, in our witness, and in our giving, in our attendance. Everything, Lord, that we do, may we put you first. Lord, as we come to you also, we pray for people we care about. Lord, I pray for uh, Jim and Mary Ellen Eagle. I pray for Hilda Pace. I pray for Miss Dot Ward. I pray for Jim Pullum and Lawson Sayer and Mike Laster. I pray for Buddy Thompson. I pray for Angie and Mark Whitlock. And I still pray, Lord, for the families of Ken Russell and Mr. Ed Johnson. We lift up Merrill Jenkins and Nettie Espinoza and Jim Barfield, Marie Glish, and Dot Bates and Gene Vining. And we lift up missionaries, Lord, especially this time of year when we start to focus our attention on our international missionaries. We pray, Lord, that today, as they worship you and as they serve you in the places to which you've called them, may they feel the prayers of your people. And may they know that what they're doing is not forgotten and that it is more than worthwhile. And Lord, I pray for Palmetto Baptist Church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to persevere. Help us, Lord, to persist. Help us, Lord, to stand firm. And help us to accomplish your objectives for this church family. We love you, Lord. We acknowledge our need for you. It is a need that is more desperate and great than we really even realize, but we even realize that it's great. So God, help us. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2004, in uh, Christianity Today magazine, Philip Yancey, who is the, he's a Christian author, but also he's an editor-at-large for Christianity Today magazine, he cited some observations by the French sociologist Jacques Ellul. 
Elul noted a striking trend among uh, contemporary Christians. Here's what he found. He said, as the Christian gospel permeates society, now get this, as the Christian gospel permeates society, it tends to produce values that paradoxically contradict the gospel. Isn't that an odd thing? The more the Christian gospel permeates society, the more its followers act out in ways that contradict the gospel. Well, Philip Yancey saw this in some writing that Jacques Ellul put together, and recently on a trip overseas, Yancey decided to put those observations to the test. And so everywhere he went internationally, he would ask this question to people that he would meet, strangers that he would meet. He'd say, when I say the words United States, what comes to mind? And he said, invariably, I got these three responses. Number one, the first thing that comes to mind is wealth. And Yancey said, representing only 6% of the world's population, the United States generates more than a third of the world's economic output and dominant global finance. The second word that he heard over and over again was military power. He says, we are, as the media constantly reminds us, the world's only superpower. Indeed, our current military budget exceeds the total of the next 23 biggest spending nations combined. And then finally, he said, the word that he, he third most often heard was the word decadence. He said, overseas, most people get their images of the United States from Hollywood movies, which seem to them to be obsessed with sex and crime. And so when people outside the U.S. think of the U.S., they think of wealth, military power, and moral decadence. Yancey says that this is not something that is exclusive only to the United States. He says European nations, which have very deep Christian roots, tend to manifest the similar characteristics which run counter to the teachings and example of Jesus. He says the life of Jesus was marked by poverty, by self-sacrifice, and by purity. And he said, so it is no wonder that many today puzzle over Christianity. They're puzzled when they see us, a powerful faith that nonetheless produces the opposite of its ideals in society at large. Those are some indicting comments. And we might stop and say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of an alarmist statement. That's overkill statement. But I'm not sure it is. I've noticed among us, and I'm including myself in this us, that that the, the more we try to follow Christ, it seems that somewhere along the way, as we're seeking to follow Christ, we allow ourselves at some point, I don't even think we really realize it, but we allow ourselves at some point to get proud of our righteousness. We get proud of our faithfulness, proud of our commitment. And the moment we allow pride to rear its ugly head in anything having to do with our faith, at that point, we start falling away. And it is uh, evidenced in most countries that have Christian roots that have become highly prosperous. There's something about prosperity, and I love the prosperity that we have in America, and I know you do too, but there's something about prosperity that breeds 
moral decadence. This was the case with Omri. Omri was the sixth king of Israel. He was the founder of the third dynasty, the third dynasty which lasted for 50 years, including his son and his grandson. He reigned for 12 years in the early 800s B.C. In all of Scripture, in all of Scripture, there are only 13 verses devoted to King Omri. But he did some great things. When he took... uh, When he took over the the rulership of the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom capital was in the city of Terza. And it was an easily invaded city. In fact, whenever Omri first was going to be king, he was at odds with another man. Half the population favored another man to be king. And so Omri's forces went to war against that other fellow potential king's uh, forces. And Omri chased him back to the palace in Terza. And and, uh, when he went into the palace, he realized that he was surrounded and was about to be invaded. And so he took his life. Burned down the palace with himself in it. And Omri became king. Omri realized that that old capital was too easily invaded. And so he went up to a place uh, to see a fellow called Shemer. Shemer owned a piece of property on a hill, and he bought that piece of property from Shemer, and he built a city on top of that hill. He called it Samaria after the name of the owner of that hill from whom he'd bought it, and he built a fortress city that was so impenetrable that later on, in later years, when Assyria, the, the superpower of the 700s, came down to invade the northern kingdom, it took them three years to conquer it. And so Omri did a great thing by relocating the capital of the northern kingdom from an easily invading, an easily invadable city to a city that was largely impenetrable. Once he did that, we learn from uh, various sources that the nation was at peace and the nation had great prosperity under Omri. In fact, Although the Bible only gives us 13 verses about Omri, there have been archaeological excavations in other places that have shown how popular he was, what his reputation was. There is a Moabite stone that was found on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in archaeological excavations that has the house of Omri listed on it. There are Assyrian inscriptions that have the land of Omri engraved on them. And there are recent excavations in the area of Samaria that have all kinds of inscriptions to the house of Omri, the land of Omri, the dynasty of Omri. So much so that scientists tell us that Omri was one of the most important of the kings in Israel, especially military kings. But the Old Testament says nothing of the prosperity. The Old Testament says little to nothing about the peace. The Old Testament says nothing about his dynasty. What the Old Testament summarizes Omri with is a very indicting statement. The Old Testament says, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he sinned more than all those who came before him. Omri was a man who had 
everything, a lot of everything, but he didn't have much God. And his life, his reign, his character, they embed in us a lesson that is so important, ladies and gentlemen, that I ought to just say it over and over and over again right here this morning. Say the same thing over and over again so that we get it. You have to put Christ first in your life. God must come first in your life. If you do that, then everything else will fill its proper place. But if we fail to give God the proper priority, the proper preeminence in life. Disaster lurks at our door. There's some lessons we learned from King Omri that I want to convey to you. The first lesson we learn is that God judges success by a different yardstick than most people. When we think about leaders and we think about their success... Uh, most of the time, uh, we think about, well, if we want to know uh, whether or not a, a, a leader was successful, uh, first, we need to know what the economy was under that leader. Uh, we need to know what the unemployment rate was. If it's low, then perhaps that was a great leader. We need to know what that uh, leader's military successes were versus failures, and that might indicate that he or she was a great leader. We, we might want to look at the uh, opinion polls of people throughout the uh, tenure of that leader to see if he or she was thought favorably by the people they were ruling over. All of those things, economy, military, approval rating, all of those things, employment, those are the kind of things that we traditionally look at when we gauge a leader. When we gauge the success of our own lives... Quite often we will look at, well, what kind of marriage did he or they or she have? What kind of education did she achieve? What kind of career occupationally did he uh, obtain throughout his life? Did he plan accordingly so that when he did retire, he had plenty of retirement to see him through the days? Did he, what kind of example did she or he leave for their children? But God judges our success on our relationship with Him and on our faithfulness to Him. People tend to judge leaders based upon some quantifiable things, how well they communicate, military, economy. But God judges our success by our relationship with Him and our faithfulness to Him. That ought to be first and foremost in life. That ought to be the number one agenda that every Christian has is to put Christ first and to serve Him. We need to judge success by the way God does. Second, a good and prosperous human life is no indicator of a good relationship with God. Back in the Old Testament, there was a there was a, uh, a theological belief that sounds good, but wasn't true. Here was the theological belief that was, that was widespread during Old Testament days. People who serve God and who are faithful to Him become prosperous, and they don't get sick, and bad things don't happen to them, and their marriage is always good, and their children never rebel. 
On the other hand, people who are unfaithful to God, disobey God, they are the ones who end up with sicknesses, especially terminal sicknesses. They're the ones whose marriages fail. There's the ones, they are the ones who, whose children rebel. They are the ones who go bankrupt and maybe more than just once. Because bad things happen to ungodly people and only good things happen to godly people. That was Old Testament theology. In fact, there's a whole book in the Old Testament devoted to refuting that theology. It's the book of Job. Job and all of his friends believed that faulty theology. After all, doesn't it sound good? If you follow God, wonderful things are going to happen to you, right? There's a little bit of that theology that's still running around today. If you follow God, things are going to be right. You'll be looking at the world through rose-colored glasses and the world will be looking at you in through rose-colored glasses and everything's going to be great. That's what Job thought until tragedy happened. He lost all ten of his kids and all of his flocks of animals and, and he, he, the, his kids lost their homes at the time that they were, that they were killed, his, his marriage deteriorated. He, he, they didn't split apart, but it deteriorated. And then his health deteriorated. And then these friends come along and they say, Job, remember our theology. Remember our, our core belief. The kind of things that are happening to you don't happen to godly people. They happen to people who have sinned and sinned in a big way. And so you must have sinned. Think about what you've done and confess it to God and repent of it. And Job said, I don't know what it is. Well, that just sounded self-righteous, didn't it? I don't know what it is. I don't know what I've done. I've been asking God and he's silent. He's not talking to me. And in fact, God didn't talk to him for about 36 chapters. He didn't talk with Job at all. And Job couldn't figure out what it was. His friend says, well, then you just need to, if you can't think of what it is, you just need to acknowledge that you must have sinned because this happens only to ungodly people. And so just go ahead and repent of whatever it is. And Job said, I can't do that. I'd be dishonest because I, I don't know of anything that I've done that would have brought this calamity upon me. You see, it was a faulty theology. Because here is the real truth. Here's the real truth. You can, be, you can become a Christian and you can be a faithful follower of God and your life still fall apart sometimes. Now, what God does promise us, what he doesn't promise us is that everything's going to be great. What he does promise us that is when life tumbles in, he won't tumble out. God will always be there. There may be a lot of times when, like in Job's case, we don't hear him. He may not be speaking to us, but that does not mean that he's not there. It does not mean that he doesn't care. It does not mean that he doesn't love us more than we've ever been loved in all of our life. But, but guarantee you this, there will be times in your life when life tumbles in and everything that's possible to go wrong will go wrong. And it is during those times that we need to grab hold to God and cling to Him with everything we've got. I was talking with a fellow with whom I was meeting one morning this week, and he asked me this question. He said, he said uh, I realize this doesn't happen maybe all that often, but he said, when someone comes to you and they're thinking of abandoning God and abandoning faith, he said, what would you say to them? 
And I said, here's what I would say. Hold as tightly as you can for as long as you can. Hold as tightly as you can for as long as you can. And here's why. Because I believe in the existence of God and I believe in the God of the Bible and I believe that God is working in a person's life even though he or she may not see God working. And if we bail out on God before he's finished doing what he's doing, we miss out on the greatest possible blessings. So we need to hold on as tightly as we can for as long as we can and give God time. Though Omri's reign brought prosperity and peace to Israel, the final epitaph on his life was that he was guilty of more evil than any other king who came before him. In Luke chapter 12, verse 25, verse 15, Jesus said this. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. In that same chapter, he told a parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And the rich man said to himself, what am I going to do? What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns and there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, so take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus says this, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And so number three, the most important decision one can make is to develop a strong relationship with God. Again, Jesus' words from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, are significant here. He says, Matthew tells us that a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied this. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And Jesus said, This is the first and greatest commandment. More than anything else, put God first. Did you see the children's sermon? You saw it, didn't you? When I poured those bubblegum balls in this jar without putting the ping pong ball in it, they were full. This jar was full. And if I, when I put the ping pong ball on top of it, I could not close the lid. But I poured those bubblegum bubble gum balls out and I put the ping pong ball in that represented God, put it in first, and then put all the bubblegum balls in it. It filled up the jar. But do you know I could twist that top on there? Isn't that amazing? You would think that if you put something the size of a ping pong ball in there, that some of the bubblegum balls would not fit in there. They would stick out enough that you could not tighten the lid. But I could. I tried it at home just in case. Folks, you and I need to make room for God first 
first in our lives, first in our words, first in our actions. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. You know this verse. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things. What things? All the things you worry about. All the things we're concerned about in life. All these things will be added unto you. You know what that means? When you put the Lord first in your life, God takes care of the other things. He may not always take care of them in the exact way that we would take care of them. But let me tell you something. When God takes care of things in a way that's different than you and I would, count it a blessing because it's a blessing for God to go His way instead of our way. And our invitation today, let me ask you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you invited Him into your life to be your Savior? If not, this is a great time to do so. Or are you a Christian? Have you been saved? You can give your testimony. But here lately, the Lord has just been like a ping pong ball that's been been sitting on top of the bubblegum balls, man. He's, He's not been first and foremost in your life at all. And maybe you need to say again to Jesus, Lord, I love you and you're my Savior and you're my Lord, but I've not been acting like it and I want to rededicate my life. I want to say to you again, I need to put you first. What about it? Is he first for you? Is he number one in your life? Omri said no. God didn't think too much of Omri. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, For the people who are in this room right now, I pray that the final epitaph on their lives, on our lives, will not be the same as Omri's. That he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all those who came before him. But instead, I pray, Lord, that through a process of entering a relationship with you and putting you first in everything, our legacy will be This man, this lady, she loved the Lord with everything she had. And you could tell that she loved the Lord from the way she lived and the way that she acted toward people. God, I pray that some priorities would be realigned here this morning. And that lives would be changed. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.